Welcome to the Liberty Equality Data Podcast, a podcast series aiming to foster discussions about the value that individuals can get from their data. We invite industry leaders and pioneers to talk about the most recent developments in different industries, the opportunities with the user-held data, and an open data market. In this episode of the Liberty Equality Data Podcast series, Marcus from Perfina talks with Stephen Charlap, a trained physician, surgeon, and successful entrepreneur in the health industry. We talk about some of the current trends, we discuss wearables, the data that they generate, how context is key in understanding data holistically. Stephen shares some of his learnings from working with physicians in terms of their environment, what data they lack, if any, as well as what are some of the challenges that they face. We also look at the possibilities from an aggregate point of view, as well as some of the limitations and the current techniques applied. All right, let's get into it. All right, well, thank you so much, Stephen, for joining me today and talking about some of these these points around uh, the healthcare industry, health data, and a lot of these new innovative technologies that are coming up. So it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. All right, well, why don't we just go right into it? Um, one of the things that, that we've seen in recent, you know, let's say the last five years is that there's been an influx of these new types of uh, direct-to-user um, sensors, if you will, wearables, that you have the Apple Watch, you have the Fitbits and, and so on. And, um, and these are, you know, seems to be something that people really engage with, that people tend to love them. They analyze their behavior, they look at how they've slept, how many steps that they've gotten, so on and so forth. Um, let's start here. How do you view these uh, new devices and then the, the utility that comes out of them for maybe a couple of different dimensions? Like, what's your perspective on them? So I see three separate categories. One is what I call the entertainment value of getting feedback about what you're doing. Two is value for your own wellness. In other words, uh, data that informs how well you're achieving a task. And the third category being clinical, where there is specific and direct impact on your medical care. So I'm going to skip the entertainment value for a moment and go more to uh, the second two categories. The second category obviously focuses on using that information to improve your health. For example, uh, tracking 10,000 steps a day. Uh, for some people, having that motivation and being able to see how many steps they've already walked and how many more they need to reach their goal uh, is viewed very positively by them. However, I remember sitting in a Stanford class a few years back when the professor asked the students, how many of you have used a Fitbit or have owned a Fitbit? And the whole class's hands went up. And then he asked, how many of you still use it? Uh, and almost no hands went up. Hmm. So it seems that these type of tools seem to wear out uh, the both entertainment value and direct benefit value for users. Again, this was true at least a few years ago. Hmm. Let's not talk about the clinical. Uh, the clinical is a tricky one because there's a presumption that your doctors want to have in-depth information about you. 
Uh, and that's just simply not true. Most doctors don't have time, inclination, or knowledge to make sense of lots of these new sources of data. And in fact, in a study I did where I interviewed 25 doctors, uh, they explicitly said to me, don't give us more raw data. Uh, we don't have time to process it. We don't have time to figure out what it means. We don't have time to apply it in our daily practices. Hmm. And this is like this is also a very very interesting point because what is it is it just the context in that they're operating in? Like for example, um, right now, if a physician asks you know the patient that hey you know do you exercise that that's one thing, but do you think that there could be a point in where they say well you know let me see your Fitbit. Uh, no, I don't see that happening unless there was a procedure code that would pay a physician explicitly for analyzing that type of data. Yeah. And I, and I don't see that happening in the foreseeable future. So it comes back to incentives. And I think this is also an interesting uh, point in terms of what you and a gay from this, this Stanford class, that a lot of these uh, new devices, of course, being new, then there are certain that that trend better than others. But for example, taping, taking that example of, of step uh, information, uh, come at, I mean, whether or not it comes from a Fitbit device or an Apple Watch or wherever, I think that, that we've seen some use cases where, for example, insurers like um, John Hancock has this vitality program. In fact, I think all of John Hancock's life insurance policies are now somewhat based on, on, on wearables. And if you were to tie it into something like that, that you know, hit this 10,000 foot threshold or 10,000 step threshold every day and you know we'll lower your premiums 1%, 2%, whatnot a year, then something like that, uh, of course, incentivizes the individual. But I think what you're saying also essentially resembles something that, that I've seen in looking at um, different, different adoption curves from different types of devices, that at the end of the day, of course, there are individuals that... Um, that, that are really into the data, but excluding that population, then for a lot of these um, use cases and applications, then it does come down to what's in it for me. That if there is some type of an incentive, then of course it becomes more about that, that incentive and that sought behavior. Like you, for example, when, when you mentioned about this, um, almost like this introspection of individuals, you know, analyzing their, their own behaviors and paying attention to that, then of course that aligns with an insurer. Um, and that's something that, you know, for, for this type of value exchange where the individual is able to unlock something using one of these devices, then that seems to be true um, also of them. But absent of that, and then relying only on that type of, let's say, entertainment value, that might be, in some cases, also a hard sell. So getting data and unlocking insight and data is really two different things. Um, let's take uh, asking a question about, do you exercise? So first of all, there are many types of exercise. First of all, in a very simple way, there's aerobic exercise and anaerobic exercise. Aerobic exercises typically deal with breathing. Anaerobic typically deals with muscles. There is uh, intense exercise. There is 
brisk exercise. There is physical activity, which is not really considered exercise, but for some people is the moral equivalent of exercise. An 85-year-old who gets out of the house and takes a walk around the block may be equivalent to a 25-year-old riding a bicycle um, you know, for 10 miles because mm. for their age group and their capacity uh, and from their health perspective, both may be extremely valuable in maintaining their health. In fact, a, a study I did kind of uh, on my own looking at uh, people who celebrated birthdays over 100 in 2013, and I did an in-depth read of the articles about their birthday celebrations, there was only one theme that seemed to be consistent as to why these people lived over 100. Hmm. It had nothing to do with their marital status. It had nothing to do with their diets. You know, some said they lived to 100 because they ate bacon and they ate chocolate. They drank alcohol, some said, because they never got married. But the only thing seemed to be consistent was that they were all physically active. Now, again, mm -hmm. not exercising, but physically active. Okay, maybe in their occupation or maybe in their hobbies, but they all seem to always be on the move and on the go, not sitting around a lot. So even sometimes exercise could be just simply not sitting around a lot, but also not just standing in one place, but physically constantly always moving could be considered the equivalent of exercise. Hmm. And it, it's interesting uh, because you're absolutely right that, that the data is not singular, that there are different types of data points. Like for, for, for example, from these wearables, like let's take the Fitbit and Garmin and um, there's you know, a handful of others. They, they do, um, of course, in many cases, separate out from heart rate intervals in terms of different types of physical activity. I think one of the problems that you tend to have, and this is kind of, um, in a way, this, let's say, abundance of, of raw data problems, that they are not uniform. And then sometimes, you know, they'll say that this is heart rate interval three. And then, you know, from, from your point of view as trying to interpret that, then, you know, what does heart rate interval three mean? I mean, ideally, they, of course, have great descriptions for what exactly that means. But at the same time, um, some don't. And then also they are not uniform. So it does, it does also create this type of problem that even if the data were perfect, it is, it is still very hard to get into that format that you can actually, you know, at a glance, actually extract value from it. Well, but it's more complicated than that because data in a vacuum is essentially worthless. For example, if I've got a low heart rate, it's valuable for me to know whether or not I'm on a beta blocker hmm. or, or I'm on some type of uh, other medication, an antidepressant or something that may, or an anti-anxiolytic, anti-anxiety medication that is slowing my heart rate and calming me down. And for me, that might be beneficial uh, as opposed to somebody else. Also knowing what somebody's normal heart rate is, because there are ranges of normal. Also knowing what type of activity they're engaged in while that heart rate was taken immediately previous to uh, the measurement. So data in a vacuum is very hard to interpret. It's kind of like... Uh, if we buried somebody surrounded by a bunch of beer bottles and a hundred years from now they found the grave or 200 or 500 years from now and they said oh there was some type of ritual 
to bury people surrounded by alcohol, right? Hmm. Well, it was really a one-off case that somebody decided to do that. So again, data is, is viewed in isolation is usually not particularly valuable in medicine. You hmm. really have to have a more holistic perspective of who the person is, the nature of the data, what happened immediately before, any impacting factors that could have influenced the data, et cetera. I remember you mentioned this concept that, that you worked on in terms of um, a precision patient. And I, I wonder if there is some type of, um, let's say, um, not necessarily overlap, but they, it does tend to, like, it, it seems like it trends in a similar type of um, direction where, for example, a lot of these, these data points, uh, imperfect as they are, they are very much about me. Uh, they are just about me and they are about my activity, my health, my heart rate, my blood saturation, whatever. Um, how do you kind of, um, when you start from this, this concept of this precision patient, well, maybe just talk a little bit about that, but do you think that essentially this, um, let's say this localization or this hyper-localization um, to starting from the patient, um, you know, how, how, how are you developing that? Um, and then maybe we can kind of talk about some of the overlaps afterwards. Sure. So let's think about what causes someone to develop any type of disease, malady, or for something to malfunction in the body. I believe there are essentially four categories. One of them, which is the category we call happenstance chance, only because we don't yet understand why those things happen. And that's a fluctuating percentage of somebody's health conditions over the course of their life. But the three other major ones are, what's happened to you already? Uh, as Shakespeare said, the past is prologue. If you already have high blood pressure at 20 years old, it's pretty indicative that you're going to have heart disease issues over the course of your life. So what's happened to you until now is significant. If you're pre-diabetic at 35, that is suggestive that you are at risk of becoming a diabetic later in life. So again, your past and current medical history is passed to your prologue. The second category is environmental influences and lifestyle, okay? Exposures to chemical, exposures to radiation, exposures to certain foods that you eat, uh, exposures to certain life stresses. I mean, stresses are known to actually cause changes on a genetic level. Mm -hmm. In other words, they found that people who went through the uh, Holocaust had measurable epigenetic changes within their genome. Mm -hmm. And that's a good segue to the last category, which is your genetic predisposition, which sometimes can be identified through your family history and to an increasing uh, percent of time, you could see it in someone's actual genes. For example, I have an older brother who was diagnosed with two cancers a week apart, turned out to have a genetic mutation responsible for people developing those cancers early in life and passed away in his 50s. So family history, genes, DNA, RNA, protein, et cetera, 
that is in your body and that you inherited from your parents is the fourth major factor. Now, there is something also called somatic mutations, which are mutations that develop over the course of your life. Are you predisposed to those mutations? In other words, those happenstance mutations because of your family history. That we haven't figured out yet. But when we talk about the precision patient, we're saying, how can a doctor treat a headache without knowing that the patient is undergoing bankruptcy? Mm. And so the headache is not something that's happening internally. Yes, it's a headache, and they're feeling it internally, but it's being caused by an outside stressor. Divorce, bankruptcy, changing jobs, uh, selling your house, etc. These are all important considerations when you talk to somebody about what's going on with them. Or someone who has constant stomach aches but was a victim of child abuse and has never quite recovered. And so their treatment should not come in the form of a pill per se, but maybe in the form of therapy and counseling. Mm. So it's very important that doctors have an in-depth understanding of their patients. The problem is that doctors don't have time. They're under significant pressures already. They're reporting high rates of burnout. They are continuing to make diagnostic errors up to 20% of the time. More than 50% of malpractice dollar claims are paid out for those diagnostic errors. A study in the last 12 months showed that doctors get tired as the day goes on, so it's better to go to a doctor first thing in the morning than later in the day, or Mm -hmm. the doctor is likely to uh, not refer you for cancer screening later in the day. So why is that so important? Again, it comes back to it's not only about the data, but it's also about who's processing the data. Do they have the time and the knowledge to properly assess the data? Are there already known insights from that data? Are there unknown insights from that data that requires more than the human brain to identify those insights? So... Data is a very complicated issue. And in healthcare, people always think more data, more data, more data. But they fail to appreciate that who's meant to use that data? In what capacity are they meant to use the data? Do they have the intellectual capacity to use the data? Hmm. So I want to give you one example. Yeah. So genetic testing is something that's obviously grown in popularity. You have the entertainment of the 23andMe's and the ancestry DNA's. And then you have real genetic testing for mutations like the one that killed my brother. But it still hasn't really caught on in mainstream medicine. And so I got curious, how about blood chemistry testing? That's pretty mainstream right now. How did that come into medical practice? Mm -hmm. So I found a historical article from about 100 something years ago, where in 1907, a prominent physician got up at a major medical conference in Boston and said, blood chemistry testing is essentially worthless in medical practice. Nine out of 10 times, it does not inform medical decision-making. Now, let's think about that for a moment. They were getting the same blood test results that they get right now that is indispensable to medical practice. But back in 1907, the reason there was so much antipathy towards blood chemistry testing 
was because doctors didn't know how to interpret the data mm -hmm. and use it in their everyday practice. And so from their perspective, the data was worthless. Hmm. I think there's, there's a couple of dimensions there um, that, that I think we can kind of um, take, take separately. Um, I, I love the example of the, the genetics test, uh, testing and these, these novelty platforms, and that's, that's one that we can return to. But as an observation then, probably because of this contextual um, lack of utilization or lack of ability um, to utilize nice data, then one of the things that, that you see is that, for, for example, for um, uh, type 2 diabetes reversal, there's applications that are built on um, behavioral data, like, for example, the step, steps and self-reported diet and, and so on and so forth on a continuous basis. But those are then provided direct to user as opposed to through a physician to then the user. And I think, for example, there's one company uh, called Verda Health that, that does this and they do it through um, nutritional coaching and then they through, do it through essentially remote um, guidance and, and physician oversight. But they focus very much on the behavioral and supporting the behavioral changes, which is, of course, also very tricky because, um, you know, um, you, you might have the perfect cure for uh, an individual's um, type 2 diabetes, but it requires, you know, quite a lot of uh, rigor on their part to stick to, for example, a, a, a diet regimen. But that's one of the things that, that um, I think you can almost see in the market that a lot of these applications uh, for new types of utilizations of data, they're actually happening uh, more direct to the user um, in a way that they try to influence behavior. They try to influence the, the, the actions that the individual takes. Um, and that might be, I mean, that, that can very well be seen to potentially be um, a result of the fact that it is just very hard for physicians to incorporate these types of um, data sources. Right. So let's take something you just said. You said behavioral. So one of the big issues that's missed in the whole behavioral field is when it's behavioral versus psychological. In other words, when it's inane versus pathological. Mm. So there's a famous story of two uh, young women who were morbidly obese. And one of them went through a program and lost several hundred pounds. And then the doctor lost touch with her for a few years and eventually caught up with her. And she had gone back to being morbidly obese. Mm. And it was discovered at that time that her and her sister had gone through profound sexual abuse. And their morbid obesity was there as a moat of sorts, a protection against men. Uh, a way of keeping men away from them by being morbidly obese. In other words, this wasn't a behavioral issue. This was a psychological issue. And no amount of behavioral modification was going to address the underlying root pathology that had caused the problem. It's also, for example, uh, in families where you have a obese husband or wife and the other husband or wife is or is not obese 
and they could be a saboteur. They don't want one spouse to lose all the weight when they don't want to lose the weight. Or they don't want a spouse to lose a weight because they fear they may become more attractive. Or any number of reasons why someone might interfere with somebody else's plans. Or social situations where all your friends are overweight. Mm. So it's more than simply helping someone count steps and giving them nutritional counseling. Uh, you may not know, but in my uh, prior life, I ran a preventive medicine clinic. And what I found was one of the most powerful ways of helping someone get better control of their health was with psychological intervention to at least help identify if there wasn't something psychological that was contributing to their unhealthy behaviors. Mm-hmm. So again, data in the absence of a more holistic understanding of the person, what we call the precision patient, but you can call it the precision consumer for the same you know, payment, um, I think ultimately means that we can make some impact. Like we can rah, rah, rah a team for maybe a few minutes of a game. But is that rah, rah enough to carry them through the entire season? Typically not. Mm. At the end of the day, talent and preparation and ability, etc., are going to carry the day, not rah, rah, rah. Mm. I love the analogy. Um, you, you mentioned also the, um, the, the genetic testing, um, a couple of different areas of that or different kind of methods of that. Um, those have also, like these direct-to-consumer genetic testing kits, 23s and me and on and so forth, those have also got, got increasingly popular. And of course, they are marketed as consumer services. So you get presentation, you get some type of, um, you know, some type of, uh, of overview and analysis um, so that it's, it's not something that you need to actually dig through the data. You get some type of um, presentation. Um, at the same time, oftentimes you are actually prompted to fill in a bunch of questionnaires. So it, it's not just the, the swab and then the return. It's also essentially, you know, pages and pages and pages of filling out different types of forms so that they can give you more context. And of course, so that, that they can make sure that the things that they actually do present to you, they are somewhat relevant. If you actually wanted to go deep into the genetics data, because they actually do give you the, the results um, that they ran, and it is a, a lot of data. Um, but at the same time, it is something that, you know, of course, that's going to scare the, the, you know, life out of a, an ordinary person because it's, it's very, very hard to go through. But you mentioned, um, you already alluded to these ser- services earlier, but how do you view them? And if essentially individuals start having more access to this type of data, do you think that there is some utility that that could be brought from essentially individuals having this type of genetic timeline, um, you know, with themselves. So I'm not a fan, and I'll explain from three different perspectives why I'm not a fan. And some people might say, well, because you're the typical physician who doesn't believe that direct-to-consumer medicine can work. Uh, And that's not true. I do think there are elements of direct-to-consumer medicine. Let me take 23andMe, for example. I mentioned earlier that my brother had a BRCA2 mutation. 
So there's BRCA2 and BRCA1. These are two genes that are associated with cancer. BRCA2, for example, has 20,000 different variants that are abnormal, uh, many of them associated with cancer. There are easily over 100 genes right now associated with different types of cancer. 23andMe basically checks one gene and three variants. Okay, that's three out of the 20,000 variants. That's one gene out of over 100 genes associated with cancer. Mm-hmm. Your 23andMe report comes back and says, you don't have the gene for cancer. Yeah. Guess, guess what you conclude? I don't have a genetic risk for cancer. Mm-hmm. When in fact, it's not telling you any such thing. And I'll give you an example. There was a study published out of Stanford uh, a couple of years back, in fact, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. The lead author was Chris Gardner, the head of nutrition research at Stanford. And it was an interesting article because they had found these three genes that seemed to be associated with diet and health. And they found people with these genes and they put half of them on a low-fat diet and half of them on a low-carb diet. And what did they find? Hmm. They found that neither the low-fat nor the low-carb diet seemed to have any influence on the genes. And what did the headlines say? Genetics does not play a role in your body's reaction to low-fat versus low-carb. But in fact, all that study showed was in reference to these three particular genes, your body has no difference in the way it reacts to low-fat and low-carb. What about other genes? The study didn't look at it. These studies are interesting, but in themselves have very, very, very limited value. And 23andMe falls into that category where its data is of limited, limited value. Now, let's talk about these questionnaires. Most people think that when they fill out a questionnaire, they do a pretty good job at it, right? They're being Mm. asked a question, they recall, and they fill it out. Where it turns out that if you're asking somebody maybe one or two questions, yeah, they probably are pretty good at answering one or two questions, basic questions. But when they get to a dozen, two dozen, five dozen questions, studies actually show that they actually suck. Yeah. Yeah, that's the right word, suck at answering several dozen questions. And the human mind and the recall is imperfect. And I'll give you an example, nutritional research. A big part of nutritional research is called the 24-hour dietary recall. So I went through a 24 dietary recall where they asked me the day after what I ate the day before. And they're going through, what did you have for breakfast? What did you have for lunch? What did you have for dinner? What snacks did you eat? And I'm, you know, this is just the day before. Of course, I should remember everything. And I'm telling them, oh, I had this and I had this and I had that and I had that. And we're basically done. And they said, you know, so what did you think about the process? And I said, you know, I would have felt better if you prompted me with some categories like, did you have any meat, chicken or fish yesterday? And then I said, oh, my God, I just reminded myself I had fish yesterday. I forgot to tell you. There you go. 
But it, it is also true of the forms. I mean, as somebody that that has filled out a bunch of forms because I, I am very, I mean, I, I like a lot of the process and I'm very, um, you know, very much an explorer uh, of these. At the same time, I can tell you that at some point, you know, whatever your motivation, I mean, you you kind of self-assess that you're going to suck at filling out this question because, you know, on, on the 15th form, you kind of get tired. And then at some point you see this indicator that, you know, we're, we're not talking about three or four forms. We're talking about like, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens and getting quality input into those. Um, especially for anything that would be meaningful. Like if we're talking about that that introspection or entertainment value, then that's one thing. But then at the same time, if you're talking about actually making decisions or recommendations or whatnot based on that, that actually becomes quite scary because, I mean, yes, um, we as humans, we, we, you know, we get exhausted. Uh, we have limited uh, attention spam and, uh, span and recall and all of those different things. There are different categories of services for sure. That for example, not, not just the quality of the uh, genome report, for example, that you mentioned, then the actual use case that's sought after, then I mean, that's gonna, that's gonna determine a lot in terms of um, you know, what you can do um, and with what type of um, input from the individual. Um, I, I like to use this analogy called Bohemian Rhapsody, the song by Queen. When Bohemian Rhapsody was created, it was a seven-minute song. And the producers said, this is ridiculous. No radio station is ever going to play a seven-minute song. And the basis of that statement was that no radio station had ever played a seven-minute song in terms of there was no popular songs that were seven-minute long that could hold the attention. But Bohemian Rhapsody became a huge success. Why? Because it was a great seven-minute song, and it also was a song made up of different music stops. Similarly, when I grew up, TV was called the boob tube. The mere idea that someone would sit and watch TV, binge watch TV for multiple hours, was a completely foreign concept. But then when TV developed into a much more sophisticated medium and cable came out, which had more leeway in terms of content, people suddenly found TV to be highly engaging and watchable for an extensive amount of time. The same problem exists with these forms. It's, if you give people these forms that require you to read every question on the screen, then their eyes are going to get tired, their brain power is going to get exhausted, their decision-making is going to begin to suffer, their recall is going to deteriorate, and they're going to do a very bad job. But if you can create a medium where the forms are no longer forms, but a different type of engagement, perhaps even what we like to call it soap health, meditainment, medical entertainment infused into the process of collecting data, then maybe we can change the whole paradigm of what it is to engage somebody and ask them, not a 10 questions, but a hundred or 500 questions. And maybe not in one session, but in multiple sessions. Mm. But it, it requires a whole different um, approach of user experience and user interface. Yeah. And I, I think it is very much that, that user experience. And I think user experience is oftentimes too narrowly um, understood. I mean, it, it's not just essentially how screens look on an app. I mean, user experience permeates all levels, 
I mean, certainly the physician's experience in any type of um, any type of implementation is relevant. So is the patient's, and the, that experience is not just the form; it's also essentially everything surrounding the form. Like, what is the medium that the form is provided in? And like you said, that can you essentially make it something that's more, um, you know, more, more, more suitable for that type of um, that type of a use case. Um, but let's let's take a step back and, and let's take one more thing that, that we think about. Like right now, we focused very much on the individual. We've talked about the, the precision patient. We've talked about some of these data points that individuals have uh, or you know are beginning to have access to, of course, still very much imperfect. If you look at this in aggregate, like um, with the caveat of the discussion that we just had around the, the issues, um, regarding 23andMe's um, testing, then if you, for example, take that aggregate set of all of the different swabs and all the different test results that that company like 23andMe has done, and I'm just picking on 23andMe arbitrarily, um, but any of these companies, and then if you're able to, for example, then let's say take individuals and connect it to, for example, individuals uh, let's take, for example, activity data now for a hypothetical, then do you think that this type of aggregate uh, data set is interesting for, let's say, a couple of different dimensions that does it hold promise as it comes to, for example, research? And then as it comes to, for example, correlations between, let's say, some type of genetic makeups um, and then early detection of some type of behaviors or some type of, um, let's say, diseases and, and so on and so forth. How do you view kind of as an aggregate those types of data sets? Right. So let me answer that question from the pharmaceutical company perspective. They view that aggregate data to be extremely valuable. They've paid 23andMe hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, Roche, a huge pharmaceutical company, bought out flat iron for two plus billion dollars for the data. So aggregate data can be incredibly valuable to pharmaceutical companies looking for insights for developing new pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. I do believe that if we are able to aggregate the type of data needed to create the precision patient, we will see some major leap forwards in medicine. In fact, the U.S. government has a project called All of Us Research. Google has a project called Baseline Health, where they're trying to create their own versions of the precision patient in order to try to understand what does baseline human health look like and where does it go wrong to be able to anticipate where those decision points and inflection points actually happen. Mm. We at Soap Health are actually pursuing the precision patient from the perspective of the more we can know about a patient and share that information in a practical, easy to understand form with the patient's physician, the better the physician's care is expected to be. We in the world want our doctors to be practicing at the top of their licenses. Mm. And in order to do that, we must understand that the intellectual capacity of humans has really been plateauing. Yes, we learn new things, 
but our capacity to retain increasing stores of knowledge are becoming incredibly limited. So the ability to take aggregate data and apply machine learning, natural language processing, and other forms of AI, deep learning to that aggregate data, and develop insights beyond the capacity of individual humans is going to ultimately prove indispensable, will lead to some incredible insights and breakthrough in medicine. And I believe with the exponential growth of these technologies, it will happen sooner than later. But the thing we must really protect against is the garbage in, garbage out. Mm. Inclusions can only be as good as the quality of the data. And so we must make sure that the processes that we use to collect data, and I'll give you an example, companies that simply rely on EHR data are going to make mistakes because EHR, electronic health record data, often contains additional fluff data needed by doctors to bill certain procedure codes or to order certain lab tests. One company that was in the business of downloading EHR data for patients told me that 40% of the diabetes diagnosis in the data belonged to patients who either were not diabetic or did not even know they were diabetic. Hmm. But the EHR clearly stated that they were diabetic. And it's hard to believe someone could be diabetic and not know it. Hmm. So again, aggregate data, assuming that it comes from a reliable and credible source, and also that we're plunging that data cleverly looking for insights. Data can be very misleading. And I like to always give the example of, if I tell you that the larger your shoe size, larger shoe size reflects uh, greater math skill among grade school children, okay? That happens to be data that's accurate. Mm -hmm. But it's not a proxy, I'm sorry, it's not causative. It's not the larger your foot gets, the bigger your brain gets, and the more your math capacity is, it's the older you get, the larger your foot gets, the more math you've learned in school, so the superior math skill you will have. Right. So we also need to be careful about casual data and causal data, or, or rather correlative data and causal data, and not confuse causation and correlation. So the answer to your question, the long answer is, yes, I think there's tremendous value in aggregated data as long as it's the right data and it's, and it's good data and we know what we're searching for in that data and we're able to identify the right conclusions from the data. Yeah. No, I, I really appreciate that. And I think it's also one of these things that in a way, if you look at that, the commercial value that already exists today, also recognizing the limitations oftentimes in some of this underlying data, then I mean, it, it's very, very hard not to see the potential in terms of you know, refining that, that more. Because I think for a lot of this, it is also an incremental process that, that these companies are still rather new and they are still developing all the time. But I think from, from my point of view, I, I really want to thank you, Stephen, for the, the chat and the conversation around this. I mean, this is like we were talking earlier. This is something that we could continue on um, for, for quite some time. But I think here is a, is a nice place to wrap up. And thank you for your time. Um, and I think especially looking at the aggregate, 
the aggregate is is interesting as a population, especially with rising healthcare costs and a lot of these um, issues that that we're seeing in individual health. And I think it is also one of those things that I personally look at as being incre increasingly interesting to watch out for what type of new types of solutions, what type of new types of, uh, let's say, um, interpretations we can find, because it's on one side, you have a lot of these new types of novel approaches, but their impact still on a macro level is very limited. And that's something that time will tell what type of behavioral shift they can actually lead to over time. Right. I'll leave you with one final thought, and that is data is not intrinsically good or bad. It is not of great value or worthless. It is the nature of the data and the application of the data that ultimately gives it its intrinsic value. And so we can't say that all data is good or bad. We need to look at particular data used in a good way to say that data has intrinsic good value. Thank you for joining this episode of the Liberty Equality Data Podcast, sponsored by Profina. At Profina, we're building a personal data cloud for individuals and developer tools to build apps that run on top of users' data. You can find more information about us on the web at profina.com. What topics should we tackle? Who would you like to hear on this podcast? If you have any suggestions or if you're interested in learning more, please join our open Slack channel, Liberty Equality Data. Until next time.